Amen. Please remain standing as we hear God's Word this morning. We're continuing our study of the life of Joseph. You'll find our Scripture passage on page 35 in the Pew Bibles before you, and we'll be reading Genesis 41, 37 to 57. Before we hear God's Word, let's pray together. Lord, you are the stone that the builders rejected that has become the chief cornerstone, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So would you build your church this morning through the word preached and the word pictured here at the table. Lord Jesus, you are exalted. We love you. We ask you to make yourself known to us this morning in this story. We pray in your mighty name. Amen. Genesis 41 Beginning at verse 37, this is God's holy, inspired, and therefore inerrant word. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paniah, and he gave him in marriage to Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities." He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread." When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth 
came to Egypt to, buy, to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the living God will stand forever and ever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Football season just finished up with the Super Bowl last weekend, but every fall, one of our favorite movies is uh, about the great Notre Dame walk-on, Rudy Rudiger. Some of you all will know the film Rudy, even though I'm not a, a huge Notre Dame fan. And if you ever do watch like modern iterations of the iconic Notre Dame-Georgia Tech game, take a look in the student section. Inevitably, there will be a sign that has a black and white photo from the 1972 game that Rudy played in, and the caption above it, Rudy was offsides. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it's still a great story. And it's a story about a kid who grew up working class in Indiana, and that's, this was a time, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, you didn't have all the stuff we have now, and there's no way a kid like him was going to Notre Dame. But he works hard, and the movie follows him, and he finally gets his opportunity to fulfill a lifelong dream. And I say that because it would be very tempting to come to this point in the narrative of Joseph and think to yourself as you read this, you know, if I just hold on long enough, then God's going to exalt me. Then I'm going to be okay. That's the point of this story. I want to say that that's not the point of this story. Yes, Joseph's dreams are coming true. But what we're going to see is those dreams coming true are not primarily for him or about him. And he knew that. Instead, what we're going to see is that Joseph's reign over Egypt foreshadows the fulfillment of the Great Commission in Jesus. Remember, Jesus himself told us that he's in every verse of the Bible, all the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Psalms, the prophets, the writings, he's in all of it. And Joseph knew that too. So this is a passage about Jesus, and here are three things I want you to see from it this morning. In the first place, we're going to see the Savior exalted in his standing, his standing, his stature among the nations. Then we'll see the Savior exalted in his government, in his government. And then finally, we'll see the Savior exalted in his family. This is a passage about the exaltation of Joseph, presaging, foreshadowing, prefiguring the exaltation of Jesus. So first of all then, the Savior exalted in his standing. Notice what happens with Joseph. What does Pharaoh recognize? He says, can we find anyone in whom there is the Spirit of God? Now, the Hebrew here makes it clear that it just, uh, Pharaoh is probably saying something like the Spirit of the gods. Uh, it's not as if Pharaoh all of a sudden has become a committed monotheist from being a pagan a couple weeks earlier. No, he's still a pagan. But here's the point, friends. Joseph already is having an impact in this nation where God has placed him by bearing witness to the true and living God. And as one author put it, that's contagious. When we live for Jesus, he's going to do things in our lives, and that will become contagious to those around us. Here Joseph is in front of the most powerful man in the world, and already this guy who is so committed to his gods. We talk, talked about this last week. This was part of the warp and woof of Egyptian society. It's, it's much more than just a religious belief for them. This was how they had their power, their world dominance, was all through their gods. That's what they believed. And here already, Pharaoh is saying, 
maybe, just maybe, there's something to this God that this Joseph guy believes in. That's astonishing. And we see Joseph filled with the Spirit, and he's 30 years old. And then we see he's exalted. He rides in the second uh, chariot to Pharaoh. He's given the signet ring, the gold chain, and again, notice the clothing. He's given the fine linen. Once again, clothing has been a, a, a theme throughout this story of Joseph. And then he's given a bride from one of the priests of On, which was an Egyptian god. All this adds up to Pharaoh essentially telling everybody in the world, he's the most powerful guy in the world at this time, this is my number two guy. Now think about this, friends. He had been in prison, he'd been thrown into a pit, and now he has more money than he ever dreamed of, a beautiful wife, more power than was ever imaginable. All the things everybody strives for, and as we keep following him through this story, he never loses sight of who got him there and who he was serving while he was there, namely the true and living God. But where does this talk to us about Jesus? My friends, just, just notice the trajectories of Joseph's life. Jesus was 30 when he began his ministry, and he began his ministry how? by being baptized by John the Baptist and the Spirit descending upon our Lord in the form of a dove. As he begins his ministry that will lead to his exaltation, he's filled with the Spirit of God. He's 30 years old just like Joseph was, and when he is brought up by the Father from the grave, when he's raised from the dead, he's given all power and authority and wealth over all the nations. This is the story of Jesus in miniature, in space-time history, in the life of Joseph. That's what Moses wants us to see. But notice also that Jesus, just like Joseph, was given a bride, us, his people, his church. Part of his exaltation is that God says to him, I am bringing together people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to be my son's bride. So that as we talked about it when we studied Revelation, at the end of all things, the city of God appears like a bride adorned for her husband. None of that is on accident, my friends. That imagery is not accidental. It's foreshadowed here in the life of Joseph. He's exalted in his standing. He's exalted in his government. And as one author put it, notice that Joseph's exaltation, just like Jesus's, was never for himself that's why he never lost sight of what God was doing. Joseph gets what so many people would dream of. Fame, power, money, beautiful women. None of that was his central focus. He's exalted to serve. And that's what he does. He serves the nations. He's going to preserve the line of the Messiah by his wise planning and providence and the way he uses what God has given him. And yet here he is being made the, most set, the second most powerful man in the world. And what does he do? Well, we see that he's a true prophet because the seven years of famine come. And then he takes percentages and eventually the grain becomes like the sand on the seashore. That Abrahamic language there, hearkening back to Abraham, reminding us that the covenant God is still in charge of all of this. And what we want to see here, my friends, is that Jesus is wise in his governance of all things, and especially of our lives. 
He's wisdom incarnate. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus is the smartest person that's ever lived? Not Elon Musk, not Albert Einstein, nobody comes close to him. Jesus is the one who upholds the quantum reality that makes uh, the general theory of relativity possible. Jesus is the one who upholds numbers and mathematics that make complex algorithms that led to the extraordinary development of so many of Musk's companies uh, viable. Jesus is the one who does all that, my friends. In Him, Paul says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I wonder if we go to Him when we feel like we're not wise. Don't you feel that in your own life? You ask yourself, like, what should I be doing? You might feel lost. You might feel like, what am I doing with my life? Our first instinct has got to become running to Him and saying, I don't know what I'm doing, Jesus. Would you help me? Would you guide me? Would you direct me? And in His wisdom in His Word, haven't you felt that? If you're a Christian here this morning, you open this book. You've maybe read it a hundred times. And every time you open it, there's wisdom pouring out of it because it's the Word of Christ in whom all are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Just like Joseph prefigured for us here. But notice also, not, as, not only is Joseph wise in his governance, his kingdom begins to have a universal reign. All the nations start coming to Egypt because of the wisdom of the exalted Joseph. And friends, this is what I mean by the the Great Commission being fulfilled in miniature here. What's the promise of Revelation 18 that one day the glories of the kings of the earth will be brought to King Jesus? And that one day all the nations will be gathered in. And that in the meantime, the Great Commission continues. Have you prayed for that? Have you asked the Lord... Father, would you send workers into the harvest? Would you send me, Lord? Would you send my children or my grandchildren into the harvest to be a laborer among them? Are we praying for missions? Are we praying in such a way that we might ask the Lord to be the generation that sees the Great Commission fulfilled? Now, I know there's a lot of speculation. Are we living in the end times? And I'm going to say this repeatedly. I don't know, and neither does anybody else, by design, by the word of Jesus. No man knows the day or the hour. What I do know is we should be expectant, and wouldn't it be amazing if we were the generation that was alive when Jesus returned, and we saw the great commission fulfilled. But in the meantime, We pray, we labor, we raise money, we send missionaries to Chattanooga, around the world. Why? Because we believe the nations belong to King Jesus. Not to any nation, first and foremost. We want to see the nations brought under the sway of King Jesus until His enemies are made a footstool. That's what Joseph prefigures here. And then last, definitely not least, not for Joseph and not for us, The Savior is exalted in His family. What did He name His kids? Forgetful and fruitful. Okay? Now notice how He says that. First names Him Manasseh. God has made me forget. But as one Old Testament scholar pointed out, 
names in the Bible were meant to be signposts of remembrance. Every time you read about a name in the Bible, it's got a reason so that you remember things. So why would Joseph name his son, God has made me forget, when he's going to remember every time he calls Manasseh's name? And the answer is this, my friends, at least part of it. Joseph knew the God of his past. And he knew that the God of his past could redeem even the parts he didn't understand that were so painful to still become the God of the bright hope of his future. So that every time Joseph and his wife would call out little Manasseh's name, just picture him holding his little baby son and saying Manasseh, and calling his name over and over and every time remembering all the pain and suffering he'd been through and still more remembering that God can redeem a past. He can redeem your past. He can take all the things that you have done, that I have done, that we're ashamed of, that we regret, that we wish hadn't happened. And he can redeem those and use them for his good. And here is the memorial to it. Joseph naming his son that would become one of the twelve tribes of Israel. And then he says, God's also made me fruitful. Notice where he's having these kids, my friends. Okay, These are going to become, these two sons will be uh, half tribes of the twelve tribes of Israel. Um, they're in Egypt, not the promised land. Potiphar is a pagan priest's daughter. So in the line of Israel, which brings us the Messiah through Judah, the tribe of Judah, there's pagans. There's exile. That's where Joseph is. He's in exile. He's not in the promised land. And that's what Jesus was for us, my friends. He left the glories of heaven, took to himself, as the Westminster Confession puts it, a true body and a reasonable soul. He became one of us to live in exile among us. And then he says to his people, you will live in exile. That's how the author of Hebrews describes God's people. We live between the promise of God and the fulfillment of God, the already of what we have in Jesus and the not yet of what He has promised to do in us. We live in exile. We are strangers and aliens in this world. And God says, yes, and I still send blessings to exiles. Do you know that God wants you to enjoy life to the fullest? That's one of the messages of Christianity, by the way. Don't, don't think that Christianity is, here's a list of what you do, and then God really thinks the world of you and brings you into heaven. Okay? That's not Christianity at all. No, it's, it's God doing like He did for Joseph that He'll do in our lives. He'll bring us through the hard, hard times. He'll cause us to live in exile, but He still sends blessings along the way, doesn't He? And one of the things we want to do as we live as strangers and aliens is live like Joseph did where he never lost sight of his Savior even in the midst of his blessings. Think about the blessings you're enjoying right now this morning. That beautiful music. A semi-warm church. Okay, this is what you get with an old building, friends. So keep your coats on during the winter at First Press. 
food, clothing, relationships, all of these things that should remind us again and again the God we serve loves to bless us in exile. But Joseph's life pattern foresignified, foreshadowed, foretold the Savior's life pattern. See, Joseph had everything, came down. Jesus had the riches of heaven, was sent down, willingly came down. And then he was exalted. And when he was here, he lived in exile without blessing to bring us the blessings. And Jesus, this is how we usually tell the story about him, right? He was born, he lived the life we owed God, he died, he was raised from the dead, and we stopped there. My friends, the earthly ministry of Jesus does not end in Mark 16, Matthew 28, Luke 24, or John 21, you might have noticed. You still got to get to Acts chapter 1. Jesus is still doing his earthly ministry. The last act of his earthly ministry was to be taken up in a cloud, Acts 1 verse 8, and he is, they're told that he will return in the same way. What's important is that he was exalted. That's his ascension to the right hand of the Father to continue his ministry to us by the Holy Spirit. He's an exalted Savior. He rules right now. And here's the most astonishing thing. He exalts his family with him, just like Joseph did. You know what Paul says? Astonishing and so easy to pass over. Ephesians 2.5. He says we are already seated with him in the heavenly places. We've been buried with him. We've died with him. We've been raised with him. Now we're seated with Him. That's identity language, my friends. And in a time that, of Western culture that's so confused about what even a human being is, everybody's asking that question. Who am I? What's my identity? And you may not be confused about genders or other things, but everybody's going to have an identity crisis. And here's what the Gospel says to us. Your identity is this, blood-bought, child of the king, brother or sister to the exalted king, exalted with him, seated at his right hand, living from heaven to earth, even as you live on earth, making your way to heaven. That is exactly who we are. That is what it means to be exalted with Christ. One last thing when we think about God remembering, we need to just hone in on this real quick. As, as one scholar explains, when we read that word remember in the Old Testament, the Hebrew means something like to act upon a previous commitment to a covenant partner. Okay, why, why do we need to know this? Because God deals with us by means of covenant. Okay, that's central to the Bible. And so all of these blessings that Joseph gets, when he says God has remembered, he doesn't mean like God all of a sudden goes, oh yeah, Joseph, not that. No, God remembering is a technical term here, and it is you know, throughout the Old Testament almost without exception. God is saying, I know you, Joseph. I know your afflictions, and I'm going to stay faithful to you because I made a covenant with Abraham. 
And in our afflictions as Christians, he says, I'm going to remain faithful to you because the covenant head Jesus has come and fulfilled everything required of you, for you, in you, so that your exaltation, my exaltation with Jesus, makes our lives even more fruitful than Joseph's. What does this mean for Monday? That was one writer I put it that's always stuck with me when you when you daydream when you kind of fantasize about things getting better here's what this author asked he or rather stated he said nobody ever fantasizes about people saying no to them right think about your daydreams when you're daydreaming about, like, I want life to be better, and here's what it would look like for me to have the great life, nobody's sitting around going, wouldn't it be great if I had just had a lot more negative people in my life going, no, don't do that, right? No, in our little makeup worlds that we, we pretend we live in, we're the sovereigns, and that's the problem. That's the problem with our, our daydreaming this way, is we want everything to be the way we like it. And the exaltation of Jesus says all that we imagine we would want, money, fame, power, all that Joseph had, is nothing compared to being united to the Savior by faith and by faith alone. Do we believe that first press? Okay, it's real easy for me to stand up here and say that. Yes, Jesus is my ultimate treasure. I can preach that. One of the wisest things one of my preaching professors ever says is it's easier to preach one sermon than it is, easier to preach ten sermons than it is to live out one of them. And that's true for all of us. We can say, yeah, Jesus, I'm with you. I want you. I want you as my treasure. And then the world comes. And we all begin to realize that the things that Joseph never got distracted by are the things we want more than Jesus. Money, fame, power, all the, all the things. And here's what God is doing so patiently, so wonderfully in our lives. He's so good this way, friends. He is going to bring you and me to a place where we are out of resources, internally or externally or both, to bring us to that point where we see that the exalted Christ is what we needed more than anything else we thought we had. That's what He's doing in your life. That's what He's doing in my life. Your plan is different than my plan. And God is the one who's wise enough, the only one who's wise enough to know how to govern things that way. So when we see that, when we understand that our identity is already being raised with Christ in heaven, even though our lives are lived as a pilgrimage making our way step by step towards heaven, we actually already have heaven coming down to us on earth. We are already exalted with Jesus. So that's how we live. And what does that look like? What does that mean? It means a whole lot. Let me just mention a couple things as we finish up. If we understand that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus, then we will understand we have all the resources we need for our lives and our mission. What are you lacking this morning, my friend? Are you coming to this table empty? Are you coming to this place empty? Are you coming to this place stressed, 
worried, fretful, anxious, sleepless, broke, hurting, wounded, wondering, doubting, wandering. Take your pick. Where are you this morning? And here's what Jesus is saying. All of that, all of that, I have the resources and I alone to make that better. It's one of the reasons we take the Lord's Supper together. He's saying, do you want to know how real my resources are? Taste the bread. Taste the fruit of the vine. They're as real as your taste buds imbibing what you're about to do. All the resources we need. How do we access those resources? This is where it gets really tricky, friends. This is where the tests come. We go, yay, resources. And then God goes, you got to trust me for them. And we go, oh. Okay, didn't bargain for that part. We access them by saying what Joseph said. When sight failed him, as it surely did in that prison, faith held on. And faith's reward was an exaltation. And your exaltation and my exaltation may never be material. You might not get all the fame and money that Joseph got. Guess what? He didn't care about that. He used it for God's glory. You can be sure in a way that even Joseph couldn't be sure of that the exaltation God brings you in Christ is better than anything Joseph got on this earth. And Joseph believed that too. So that in the midst of the grief and the hardship and the pain of life, we become just like Joseph because we become more like Jesus. That we show off as He exalts us even when the circumstances don't change. As He exalts us in Christ, Jesus looks better than money or fame or anything else through us. That we become missionaries in our suffering. We become guideposts to a Savior for sufferers who Himself suffered and was exalted in our place. And the best news is, I think at least, this is what we have now. Imagine what He's going to give us later. And one of the things that's so hard in the American church is for us to believe and trust that heaven is actually going to be better than America. Okay? Love what God has blessed this country, friends. Let's all just go, thank you, Lord, for that. Because, yes, freedom, material abundance, all these things. A lot of sin in this country, too, you might have noticed. And our own hearts as well. The problem we have in the affluent Western church is we think this is as good as it's going to get. And here's what God says is, all the best blessings you enjoy, and we're meant to enjoy them. You're not meant to be guilt-ridden over them. All the best blessings you enjoy will never be as good as what I have promised you in Jesus. That's the promise. That's what we believe by faith. That's what we hold on to. And we get the foretaste of heaven now as He gives us the earthly resources, spiritually and otherwise, that we need to see the Great Commission fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for exalting Jesus. Thank You that He has poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and that we are gifted by the Spirit with gifts to serve Your body. 
So Lord, help us to see that the exaltation you give us in Jesus is better than we could ever imagine. We pray in his name. Amen.